Hello, dear friends. This is Alley AudioVision, a series of talks with Ralph Alley, architect. I'm Clark Yarrington of Frame Residential Design in Anchorage, Alaska. Ralph Alley spent 30 years designing in Alaska beginning in the late 1950s. He's got a brilliant body of work and a collection of stories. In this first episode, we'll discuss Ralph's arrival in Alaska and his first impressions. Ralph Alley joins me from an undisclosed Southern California location. Hello, Ralph. Clark. Yes. How's it going? Well, I have been expecting you to phone me, and I hope I can answer the questions you want me to talk about. Yeah, well, I thought we would um, pick up your story kind of um, when you first came to Anchorage. So as, as I understand the timeline, you were in architecture school, and right after you finished up with that, you came to Anchorage pretty much straight away and started working. Is that kind of what happened? Well, first, I worked for Fred Vassetti, who was a fairly well-known architect then in Seattle. And I had an apartment on Capitol Hill, and it rained. And there was this metal vent on the roof of it that was like living underneath an ancient Chinese water torture. And one day I woke up, and I said, I've got to get out of here. And the phone rang. And it was a guy on the other end of the line said, would you come to Alaska and work for six months and... uh earned $10,000. And I said, who is this? It sounds kind of like a scheme. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) And he says, well, I was just talking to Ted Pritchard at the University of Idaho and learned about you. He told me to come over and talk to you because you told him you hate rain. And I didn't realize I was starting an adventure in snow. But I finally decided, sure. And I, uh, and Fred Bassetti and I quit our relationship there. And I flew home, told my mom I was going to Alaska. And she thought that was the most remote, horrible thing for me to do. In those days, Alaska was not in the mainstream as it is today. It's always far off way beyond anyone's thinking of ever going to. So I bought a plane ticket and flew up there. That's awesome. Yeah, I think um, maybe a a generation or two before then, the same thing was said about Seattle. It was kind of off in the corner of the country, and people may have heard about it before, but they hadn't actually been there or anything. Well, uh, it's almost surprising how the North opens up, isn't it? Because today, everybody I know has been to Alaska. Even people you'd never expect would go to Alaska, go there. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of a thing to do, I guess, uh, for a lot of people. And we had a housekeeper that went up to, um, took a cruise up in the inside passage, and she thought she'd been in the Arctic. And she came back and says, oh, I've been all over the world. I've been to the Arctic. And I thought... You went to Juneau or in Skagway? And she says, yes. And I said, well, that ain't the Arctic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You probably learned early on to uh, um, define your terms a little bit and the different uh, climatic <laughs> zones and such. Yeah. I 
I did a lot of work up in the Arctic, and I learned about that. It It's somewhere else. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I got to go up there a couple of times myself, uh, like in the late 80s up to, I went to uh, Barrow, which is which is now renamed Utkiagvik. So I went there, and, I, and also to the uh, North Slope Village of Wainwright. That was pretty cool. I got to fly in a little plane along the top of the state there at a low um, elevation because we were in fog, and from the plane I could see a bowhead whale going by. It was fantastic. It's like, man, this is a a, a unique experience, right? It is. Uh, my wife is from Anchorage, and she had never been to the uh, Arctic. And uh, in the late years in Anchorage, I had to go up to um, Barrow once a month and meet with the, um, I guess they called it Burrows in those days. I'm trying to remember the exact North Slope. The borough. North Slope Borough, yeah, it's still the, the government. It's still there like that. There's the city and the borough both. And the government building was very nice then. I was such a shock to see such a nice building up there. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I we flew up there, and of course, the Sheffield Hotel is that still there by any chance? That's where we stayed, and yeah, I think they had this vat. I think it's just called something different now, maybe. I'm not sure which one oh. that is, you know, because some of those old ones are still there, and they're not too, uh, some of them have become kind of like flop houses. <laughs> what kind of houses? Oh, you know, the flop houses are a little bit uh, not in, not in such good condition. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> well, there was this great big vat behind our room of brown water, and oh. Sounds charming. The smell of, the smell of the toilet was awful from there and it was dark brown and and anyway i had this wonderful wife with me and it actually was our anniversary one of our anniversaries and it was kind of a nice experience of that one that she'll never forget <laughs> so um if you don't mind saying what year was it when you first stepped foot in anchorage uh, that was in uh, late february i think of march in 1959 so it was just before uh, statehood. It was, and it was right, I think, the um, dog races had just finished up there. So besides uh, some of the stuff you've talked about thus far, how did Anchorage um, meet your expectations, or did you even have any expectations? I had no idea what that was. I didn't know anyone there. I had no relatives, and the only touchstone I had was the guy who called me up on the phone and uh, he picked me up at the airport and immediately said well I've got to take you to a boarding house that I've located which was on uh, somewhere near 5th and G it was behind a police station which was next to the Jonas Brothers Furriers which now I think has it used to be called a Royal Inn but there's a hotel on it now. Yeah, that's uh, you. T- you told me about that once before, and um, like a lot of blocks downtown, you look at that block now, and that hotel tower that replaced the Jonas Brothers store is still there, but um, there's really nothing else left over from 1959 on that block, and there was a bunch of uh, stuff there, you know, different buildings and probably a house or two. Well, the house was off the alley on the south side of the alley, uh, and it was um, rather uh, modest. And the first thing I noticed were these slick walls, which ended to be marlite. I'd never seen walls of 
more like before. And of course, a awful radio blaring um, music that I don't like. Yeah. And, but anyway. Cheap finishes are, um, a friend of mine uh, who I worked with just more in more recent years was um, commenting on all of the chain link fences here. He said, yeah, I can't believe somebody would have a chain link fence on their house. You know, that's <laughs> something that uh, it's, it's an agricultural <laughs> accessory if anything, or like an, an industrial <laughs> yard. Yeah. If you have a fence on your house, it should be made out of wood. I never even really thought about it. But yeah, there's tons of cheap finishes. The place still does have this kind of very uh, temporary feel. It's one thing that we haven't changed much over in 60 years. Well, the guy that actually hired me in Seattle and picked me up and took me there was Bob Hamilton, who... Um, he was an architect? Was... He was an architect and associate with Manly and Mayer, where I uh, ended up working for five and a half years. We'll get into that uh, because I worked there for that period of time, but I specialized in moonlight, <laughs> and that's kind of the beginning of my career, real career up there. Yeah, that's uh, uh, and that's a, a neat story just in, a, in and of itself. So... W- what was Manley and Mayer's attitude about um, moonlighting? I mean, did did you get fired after they found out you were doing it? I didn't ask them. I just I just did it. I was unregistered, and uh, it was kind of a thing. I just kept quiet. I just worked nights. I ha- I studied for the state boards on. At the first year, was the, the state boards were only given every two years then, and they are were made up. They weren't national exams; they were made up by the practitioners in Alaska, and also were uh, uh, given by the practitioners in Alaska. And it was kind of an amazing thing to uh, be in a position of being graded by your competitors probably future right and it, so it seems like you would uh, need to be here for a while and have some experience in this unique place in order to uh, not uh, flub some of the questions I mean you couldn't just like sail in and uh, answer all these questions before you had some real on-the-job experience well Alaska does present a lot of interesting I would maybe even more than interesting, but some pretty vital things you have to pay attention to. And, of course, the uh, uh, freeze-thaw that goes on in Anchorage is kind of an amazing part of design, as well as, uh, of course, the insulation, but the drainage from roofs and things, things you never think about. Yeah, you can get away with not thinking about them if you're working in a lot of places, but the building envelope is kind of everything around here. And there's, there might be a few places where there's a conditions like this, where there could be a 50 or 70 degree uh, temperature swing in a couple hours or four anyway. Well, it's interesting. You said the practical experience because I did encounter architects from different parts of the world who flew up there who get registered when they graduate from college and they were able to get reciprocity without even getting tested or without practical experience in Alaska. That was didn't sit well with me at first. Yeah, it seems like it, it would be 
it would be awkward in execution. You'd have to kind of work the kinks out as uh, as you went. So you didn't uh, build a, a building that had you know rain dripping off of the beams on the in, inside the living room or something. Something like that. And that's happened to me. Even thinking about those things, I, you know, that's hard to prevent everything. Yeah, and some other architects that I know too that were like you doing similarly kind of um I don't want to say risky behavior exactly but you know <laughs> Yes it is. Well, okay. <laughs> it's not good for your health, I know that. Yeah, but it's at least um pushing the envelope, you know, you're not doing garden variety stuff and so if you're working with um non-traditional uh forms and uh, details that aren't normally done you know it's a uh, you got more of a chance of like um running in ground maybe i don't know i don't know if i really am making any sense of this well, but i i could say probably the big mistake i did is within a month i met somebody who asked me to design their home and i designed it and it was up in a year i was 23 when i went there so I was 24 by the time it was built, and it got a lot of attention. It was, there was no way I could hide. But it's interesting, Manly and Mayer just never even knew I was doing it. They never weren't lived in those circles, I don't think, or uh, had that kind of outreach to other people other than their families and their business partners and that was somehow I was undercover by that. Yeah, it, maybe it was a little different um, in in those days. But I, I started working in the field in the early '80s, and um, seems like most of the firms they had a um, n- not really a liberal attitude about it, but they recognized that people were um, moonlighting and freelancing outside of the office on houses, and um, as long as um, it wasn't uh, causing a problem to them like you were, you know, using all of their office equipment to produce it or whatever. They were just like willing to say, you know, you know, it's okay. It's, uh, it's given, given him some good experience. Maybe. I had a portable drafting table and at first I hadn't a car. I ordered a Corvair, which intrigued me because it had a rear engine and I thought the weight over the rear wheels would be great in snow. You had no idea it wasn't a good Alaskan car, huh? (laughs) No, but I had it and I got it. So I had a Corvair and a portable drafting table and I did quite a bit of work with that. Yeah, so you, I know a little bit about which house you're talking about and it wasn't uh, the type of house where you could just crank out the drawings in a weekend or something. It was actually a pretty elaborate um, thing that had a superstructure that was put in first and had a kind of a um, framing package that was pre-cut and barged here or something like that. Yeah, uh, elaborate, really. I don't think uh, it. It was a not a large home, and it wasn't a show-off house, but. What I tried to do, uh, and I was actually uh, somewhat surprised by, was the changes of light that were so quick uh, during the seasons. And uh, the light would 
reach every side of every building, and I'd never seen that before. And I also thought that the south light was one of the most important means of of um, of happiness, I think, for rooms within a home, within buildings maybe. But the south low south light uh, is a low arc, and it lasts very few hours during a day. And I wanted to be able to capture that and to be able to capture the natural light as it goes around every side of a, this structure. And the home was faceted. It had six sides to it. It was actually an elongated hexagon and had a star-shaped Gulam superstructure, which meant actually that it was laterally supported in every direction. And uh, it went up very quick because we prefabricated the superstructure in Seattle. Uh, Joe Jackson of Worthington Skilling in Seattle did the structure. And, uh, and it was shipped up to the site and the superstructure went up in a day. And it was an amazing thing for me. But uh, it did get a lot of play around Anchorage at first. And especially got play after the earthquake because it had no damage to it. People came up to Alaska to, um, to, to see it, to investigate it. And that was kind of an interesting part of its life as far as being a structure. Well, I want to talk about that house some more, but we've already been talking uh, long enough here that I think we've got to take a quick break. And um, we'll come back in half a minute and um, got some more questions about that house. So hang on, okay. we'll be back in a half a shake here. Clark Yarrington on Alley Audio Vision. We're speaking with architect Ralph Alley about the very first house project that he freelanced while he was an intern architect at age 24 in Anchorage. Let's get right back into it. Okay, well, before that little break, we were talking about the first house that you designed uh, when you were age uh, 23. I found myself thinking... Um, 
did uh, the other people, the contractors and engineers and suppliers and uh, so forth, uh, know they were dealing with a 23-year-old, you know, not that it makes any difference. <laughs> it would, it, as soon as they started talking to you and realized you knew what you were talking about, it was probably fine. But uh, really, I don't know anybody else who, uh, you know, usually you're more like closer to 30 when you got that level of responsibility. Well, the worst of it is I look like a kid then in those days. And uh, it was kind of amazing that someone would trust me, but it was at a dinner party. Uh, and I sat across from this couple who um, started talking about my reaction to the existing Anchorage architecture. I have a lot of feelings about that because I think at that time it, Anchorage was at its apex as far as the older generation um, went. They produced the best that they knew how to do, and in some ways, way, they were, and their buildings were magnificent as far as the level that they went. But the thing I talked about was that I noticed that at night it was so dark there that the light coming out of the windows and the doors were was uninventive, uninteresting. And I mentioned that maybe uh, windows should be shaped or placed so that when the lights come on, when Anchorage gets dark, would be quite magnificent in, in itself just by that. And uh, these people started paying attention to me. And I also said that I've noticed just from what I see that Anchorage doesn't have one angle any place that reflects the tremendous terrain and the geography that surrounds it and everyone was it sitting. seems like it was uh, it seems like it was laid out by railroad engineers to begin with and uh, everything <laughs> was in these 90 degree angles and uh, it just uh, you know it didn't exactly like um, lead to anything like that you know not to make excuses for people but um, uh, it it just seems like it was always kind of um, well one one thing I thought was interesting is that um, since it uh, there was it wasn't there at all before 1915 it never was like um, a city that was pre automobile yeah well one thing uh, people always think doing buildings with angles is wasteful and frivolous but when I saw how the sun hit the buildings and to develop an architecture for the north, I felt that as the sun moves so quickly in the sky during a day in the summer and and toward toward the winter time, that the faceted the buildings that were faceted would just be extraordinary because you could stand there and see this wonderful dance of light on the buildings that uh, bathe in that beautiful. Um, amenity that Anchorage has. You'd also probably have to try to anticipate all the different conditions and avoid um, problems that might be caused by something like that, right? Like the sun would um, reflect and and you'd get a sun image right back in your eyes or something like that if you weren't uh, careful about exactly how it was done. I don't know. When windows have to be strategically placed mm -hmm. and you have to really study a site in order to do that. Yeah, uh, that's always good advice for people and you know that's um one um, way that architects and designers could really help a client to design a house because people like they tend to have um 
notions about how they want things to be and they may not have like owned this property for a full year and be completely like in touch with uh, the annual sun path and um, also you know the other like kind of constraints and opportunities views and wind and everything else that uh, makes the site unique the site where this house was built was up off of upper huffman which is high above uh the city of Anchorage. And it's a beautiful, then it was very beautiful. I don't know what it's like Still now. Still pretty nice up there. But it it had a primitive quality that I liked. And of course, there was uh, there are mountains behind it that are quite extraordinary. And I just thought it was a wonderful place to have a first uh, building. The thing about designing an Anchorage with the freeze thaw is that I finally figured out that the gable end is the greatest friend to design, and it actually influenced most of my designs, where you didn't um, have water draining off over garage doors and entryways and places where people access buildings. And it is surprising how many different different plans were influenced by that and how many different shapes uh, sprung from that concept. Well, a lot of your houses, when I've seen them for the first time, it's uh, it rather um, makes a pretty strong impression. Like um, this man really knows how to articulate a facade. Well, I I don't know about facades. Uh, they always seem like two dimensional to me, and I've never really thought of buildings being two dimensional because they're to me, more than three-dimensional. There's the inside, the outside. There's its relationship to everything around it. I like. I don't want to sound like an idiot who has this one thing, but I think Alaska allows people to do more with architecture than that. Where I live now, people just throw up these two-dimensional builder burgers and everyone lives in them and no one even thinks about drainage or sun or uh they think about their bedrooms and bathrooms and that's about the size of it yeah the um i never did well that. the I, i'll just say uh, as an aside that um the, the 3d visualization of buildings is something that um isn't a lot of people don't have that right out of the box it takes time to develop you know that you understood all of that so well uh, when you were first starting out is um, pretty amazing. Well, I was told by one of the professors that you that when I was in architecture that I was one of the few people he's ever been around that had a three dimensional mind, and um, this was before computers could even produce three D real quick uh, for years before and. Uh, I could always see it, could never really do anything but draw what I saw in my mind for people uh, to uh, buy the architecture that I was doing for them. I would pray to God that it would look like that when it was finished. <laughs> it was like that because I really could only test it within my head. Well, that first house turned out okay, didn't it? It sure did. Yeah, and... Um... Did it uh, meet their expectations and uh, budgetary uh, framework and such? Well, uh, I 
believe it did. I, I'm trying to remember. That was a lot of years ago, like 65 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, 60. And, but they did like the house. Of course, my life got so busy that later on we lost track of each other, uh, as you do with clients over time. And the, one of the last times I saw them was right after the earthquake. I lived down on 15th and O Street or S Street. I can't remember which. They were, came to the door after the quake and they said, our house, our house hasn't had one bit of damage. And they said that Joe Jackson from Seattle had already been up there. He was one of the first to get permission to go up and f- went right up there to look at that it. Was this, and, he uh, was the structural engineer, right? He was a structural engineer, yes, because he was really curious about it being laterally supported from all sides, mm-hmm. all directions. Yeah, and that was before uh, there were so many um, rules and regulations about that too, but um, I think it uh, the same principle still applied. And... Well, people ask me if I had that thought in my mind, and I've got to tell you, I didn't. I, I did not think about earthquakes when I designed that whatsoever. Yeah, well, you weren't the only one that's, uh, you know, cons- considering what <laughs> happened. And um, we're going to get into that in a future episode, too. I think you've probably got a lot to say about the earthquake and um, and its uh, aftermath in various ways. But um, so yeah. back to um, the <clears throat> office, what was that like? I mean, what was it like to go there on a daily basis and interact with your coworkers and such? Well, after statehood, personnel changed a lot. Uh, architects would have... Is that noise on your side? Um, I'm not sure. I'm hoping that it's um, not going to be too prominent. I'm trying to I'm trying to sit really still and not move around a little bit, but uh, yeah, I think we'll work some of the kinks out well, of the recording as we go. It's like a chair sliding around or something. It sounded like a 707 was coming on the side of your house. Oh, no, nothing like that. Oh, that's better. It's not so much now. But I, do, anyway, I do hear some uh, noise, the, noises thumping around. But. Well, the office did have a, a lot of personnel going in and out of there. And what happened after statehood, architects would just show up. Uh, that never happened to that firm ever before. And a lot of them... They just show uh, up, would, you mean, without being invited? Without being hired beforehand, just looking for work. And we used to wonder why they would do it. In fact, we had a game in the office. of we, we People would come and we'd wonder what... Or we'd have about five categories that we tested them by, whether... Uh, they came up there because they were fleeing, or I can't remember all of it right now, but uh, <laughs> we would have these bets on people. And, of course, it got to be where nobody was there for any of the reasons that we thought they were, and a lot of were wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah, there still is a lot of that sort of end-of-the-roadism in this place, you know, where it, it, people show up that uh, that couldn't make it somewhere else for one reason or another. I do think Alaska presented for some a certain amount of freedom that they were losing stateside uh, as far as being able to buy land. and they, It was more affordable for them. I get into that, I think, later on in my book 
uh, of putting together constructing homes that were kind of primitive, but it was fun to do uh, for people that I knew, with people that I knew too. But uh, there was a great turnover, and some of the characters, uh, Clark, were <laughs> just beyond belief, and I learned so much from it all. <laughs> it was a show that just continually added to one's life experience. <laughs> Yeah, so um, was it kind of like one big open room where everybody was in uh, on top of everybody else and there was not much privacy? No privacy. One open room, one telephone with a cord that was so long that you could trip over it half the time. And uh, it was one of those places where everyone really got to know each and hate each other if you had to. Yeah, <laughs> if the circumstances uh, warranted. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. You mentioned the rooming house and um, and that it had cheap finishes, but the, wasn't there some like kind of nutty characters around there as well? Oh, yes. Uh, but one thing I wanted to tell you is that when I went to the office the first day I worked, its walls were Marlite as well. I thought all Alaska was Marlite. I, I couldn't believe it that uh, slick walls were nothing I'd ever encountered before. So was it just that Back the, to the was it just out. that the stuff was really light to it, in order to ship it here compared to what you could use instead? I guess uh, it came in a lot of different colors: bright yellow, red, gray, whatever you wanted, and. I noticed that on a lot of the specs for the schools that Manly and May were doing, were doing that Marlite was a big item for a lot of the toilet rooms. But anyway, back to the boarding house. Not the boarding house. Uh, it was kind of a run by people who liked to drink a lot. Yep. And I, I had never been around that element. My folks are pretty straight-laced people. Some Friday nights were pretty interesting. I uh, didn't want to even stick around for the meals because they were so raucous and fighting. And it, the fighting wasn't between the boarders there. It was between the man and wife who ran it, who were quite colorful too. Uh, but it was kind of an uh, life experience that uh, kind of builds on other experiences and you're glad you had it but glad you could leave it and I did in time yeah you probably couldn't wait to get the heck out of there huh not really I mean yes I could hardly wait so I don't know if you were a fan of uh, newspaper comic strips like I was but there was um, a newspaper strip that was about a boarding house that had this um, the main character was this guy who is his wife did all the work to run the boarding house, and he just sort of um, came in and provided atmosphere. And he was this big, tall, fat guy that like had a cigar and and a fez on his head, and he would have all these like uh, fake war stories that he would tell the people who were living there. You know, it's like, gather around, boys, and let me tell you about the time when I snuck behind the enemy lines, <laughs> stuff like that. What was the name of that strip? Oh, it was like um, our boarding house, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I remember that. Well, I that, kind but... of 
Well, I kind of think I remember it in a way, and I was just, I've never thought of it, but I, I remember the big guy with the fez on his head, and I suddenly the whole vision of it came to my uh, mind. So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's possible. Well, um, so, and there was a, a police station right across the alley from there? The kitchen window looked across the alley into the back of the police station, and generally there were police cars lined up against that building uh, when we would go out there to eat. It was not a beautiful sight, but at least the uh, police station was tall enough where it would hit the, hide the northwest sunlight from the kitchen windows so you didn't have to pull the blinds down. <laughs> That's how wonderful it was. I went to an art exhibit a few years ago where they had some films that were made in downtown Anchorage a few years before what we've been talking about, like maybe the mid to late uh, 1940s, probably the late 1940s, right after the end of World War II. But but it showed mm -hmm. these people, um, you know, they um, they filmed it out of a car driving down Fourth Avenue both ways, and then like walking around Fourth Avenue a little bit. And there there were lots of bars, and there were lots of people who were really wasted and just kind of staggering in the street. I mean, it didn't look like a, a particularly um, respectable uh, place. Great yeah. environment. <laughs> environment. Well, Anchorage. It was a dichotomy. It, in some ways, I got to meet some magnificent people who were from that era, and I could see the things that they built that were magnificent for Alaska, as hotels and newspapers and and uh, certain commercial stores, and they were the people behind it. And these people were the movers and shakers of Alaska. And they were able to provide a real sense of community that is rarely seen in communities today. Uh, when there was an event, people participated. Not everybody, but the people that knew each other or knew of each other would join in. And there were plays given, uh, theatrical productions, parades and these people were there they would attend and they gave it real meaning and I can remember Bob Reeves wife Tilly had an old-fashioned automobile probably from oh I don't know the 20s or something and it was she was famous for driving down the street in every parade and that everyone waited for her to come <laughs> it was like that it was an amazing feeling uh, Anchorage That's great. Uh, was able to bring about. We'll hold yeah. that thought again, Ralph, and uh, we'll take another uh, quick pause here for effect and come back in half a minute and uh, wrap it up and talk some more. Okay, I'm here. Thank you. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here is a youngster who's come up with the, well, the record now is riding number three in the national charts. Here is Tommy Edwards singing, it's all in the game. Now, Tommy, kick it loose there. Many a tear has to fall.
We're speaking with architect Ralph Alley about how he got started in his architectural practice in Anchorage. Let's fall back into part three of our conversation here on Alley Audio Vision. Okay, well, just before that break, we were talking about the atmosphere of early Anchorage, and you mentioned the Reeve family. I actually um, was working on a house, a new house for some clients who were living in the Reeves' old house, and he pointed out a couple of things and um, mentioned uh, something else to me that I thought was fascinating. But um, the um, the kids' names were um, in the sidewalk out in front of the house and, and still there in uh, 2005 that had been, like, you know, written in the wet concrete in 1940 or something. <laughs> I believe I knew uh, the, the kids... Um, uh, people my age at that time when I was there seemed to find each other. There were Friday night parties for the young adults and uh, people like Eddie Rasmussen and uh, Murphy Clark and and a lot of sons and daughters of those pioneer people were there. And uh, I got, and the mountain climbers uh, and the uh, other uh skiers that had some notoriety then they would show up too so you got to meet a real microcosm of what made up alaska yeah pretty good cross section it sounds like yes well um so you finished up that first house and did that immediately lead to a lot of other ones or um uh, did it uh, progress a little more slowly uh i had a friend named ray Salmi. And he was an architect that was came through Manley and Mayer uh, that I met, and then he left for Crittenden. His wife hated, or I, that's probably a bad thing to say because too strong. I know her. Yeah, a little strong. Uh, Pat is it has been a friend even as of late. So, but she disliked the cold. She was from Anaheim, and she decided that they would live there, which they did. And he opened an architecture firm there, and I knew Ray here, and I've been in his firm, and I know his kids, and I know Pat as a Californian. But uh, Ray ended up calling me one day, uh, and at that time, I lived in an apartment over the Chichaco Bar. Which was uh, on uh, 4th Avenue, right? Yes, it was next to the old Hewitt. It was in the Hewitt Drugstore building, which is went with the earthquake, but it, uh, which was across from the original Westwood like Hotel. 4th and uh, E Street. Yes. And uh, he asked me if I'd go for a ride. And I said, well, okay. Uh, uh, he says, Pat's gone, I'm batching. I said, again? And he said, yes. Uh, uh, it says, she's down in Anaheim trying to 
find us a place to live and we're going to be leaving. And I said, well, sure, I'll go for a ride with you. And so that Sunday, he picked me up in his car. And one of the first things he wanted was to go up and see the six-sided house. He said, uh, people at Crittenden's know of that house. And they said, you did it. And I want to see it. And I said, well, Ray, I, I, this is really giving me the heebie-jeebies, actually. I, I, I don't want that house to get known all over. He says, what kind of nut are you or something like that? He says, every architect wants your work known. And I said, well, I'm not registered. I'm not one of those. And I don't want to jeopardize getting registered. And by then, um, I, I could only take the exam every two years. I took it the first year I was up there and I passed everything but two sections. And one of them was design. And then by that time, I was taking the second. It's kind of funny what his and, uh, attitude was toward it, though. You know, it's like, uh, it, of course it's all about your ego. You're an architect, right? I know. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was concerned about my rear end in those days. But anyway, we got in the car. I took him up there. And afterwards, he says, okay, we're going to drop by... Uh, a, a place uh, out south of the airport. And then uh, I know this architect named Don Coolidge who's dying to meet you. And he and he's with Crittenden. And I said, okay. So we went to this place and we parked and the trees were magnificent. I hadn't seen such large trees in, anywhere. And I'd been in Anchorage. And he said, see over there, that is a daylight basement. And he says, I am designing a, a first floor on that. Was he already living in the basement when the first floor was being designed? No. An uh, artist by the name of Joan Kickbush was living there, and she painted oils of little native kids, and everybody in town seemed to like her paintings, and they were all over the town. So we went in there, and she was a lovely person. I've known her even up until she died. Uh, she lived in uh, Borrego Springs uh, in California, which is an hour away from me, and, uh, and remained a friend all these years. But it ended up that um, Ray kind of designed the shell, but I ended up designing, articulating the outside and the interior detailing. For that house and it became since she was so well known there it became known that I was involved with it which was the second thing that pumped me up there Ray left and he left me with designing a commercial building which I didn't want to do because I wasn't registered and he says I'll cover it I'm an architect in Alaska and I'll, any trouble you get I'll cover it and that was for Bailey's Rental, which was on Fireweed, which is no longer there. And the next, his home, which is on Stanford Drive out at uh, College Gate, or College Village, which now Dave Cole lives in. And uh, I did that house. Uh, he had already designed the shell, but I took it and articulated the whole thing, did the same thing. And... I know of that house, too, but I didn't realize it was uh, that old. Oh, yeah. 
uh, I, it was a, I, I've got to tell you this, I hated split entries. And this house was on one of those kind of three-level things. And I thought, I'm going to do something to get rid of that look. I hated it. The, you know, I, the uh, sides of sleeping cars on trains used to kill me because all the windows were crooked. They never lined up. They were always zigzagging. And I didn't do that. Uh, but anyway, uh, the interesting part of it was that I did redesign it to where there was some idea the, of the house being a unit, which I really liked. And it was a split entry, too. No, it wasn't a split entry, but it had three levels like that, a half level and a two-story level next to it. And that house has an interesting gable treatment as well. I really like how, how that aspect of it looks. It's got these big uh, white panels that are in the middle, and the windows are on the sides, and they're angled walls, and it's a, it's a pretty neat assemblage. Well, uh, the house had a butterfly roof on one end of it, which I hadn't encountered. But uh, I had to encounter. And that, Go ahead. I got to say, like, looking at that house from the front, it's really fascinating because the roof kind of um, kicks up, and so it starts out being uh, an, a horizontal overhang, and it kicks up and becomes like a, uh, a vertical fascia. And so you're looking at it and you're wondering like exactly at what point does it make the transition from one to the other? Well, there you know was, a, I mean? yes, I do. And what I did was develop a, what I call a strike line and it's like a belt around the middle of a body. And that's a strong line in that house. And the roof moves in all kinds of angles above it and the ground moves in all kinds of angles below it. But that's one static element to the whole design. And the uh, and everything kind of aligns to that strike line. And uh, when I used stucco on that house, I was told you were t talking about this earlier, but I was told by the stucco people or people who could do stucco that you can't use stucco in Anchorage. And I said, why not? It seems like a great material. And people always had these things that you could do or don't do up there. I used it anyway, but I broke it up so that uh, if there were problems, they didn't have to replace the whole thing. And I got my clients to go along with it, and they didn't have problems with it whatsoever. What's nice about that house is you go by it today, and it still is uh, the original colors and uh you know, it's a, it's a little bit weather-beaten, but not badly, but at least it um, still reads like uh, I'm sure you intended it to. You know, it hasn't, hasn't been painted some wacky color or something. Yeah, most of the houses have got red doors and blue siding. I, I have been up there. It makes me w want to tr flee. <laughs> Cringeworthy. I yeah, know when I sure. see it. For a while, it seemed like everybody wanted everything to be like a kind of a a tan or beige body with a green uh, trim of one sort or another. We, we called it the Eddie Bauer look. <laughs> Probably. But anyway, yeah, That so that house is um, still in really good shape, and they there has, I think you may have uh, seen it in this uh, state, but somebody put an entry edition on it. And it's, but it's uh, sympathetic, I'd have to say. You know, it, it doesn't look like the rest of the house, but it doesn't look bad either. It's got... Um, 
some exposed beams and a lot of glass. The did glass Buck, is kind of... Uh, did the guy by the name of Buck do that, a contractor? He li- he lives across the street, and I it, he he may have built it. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll okay. ask him the next time I talk to him. Is Dave Cole still in Anchorage? You know, I, I, I'm not too sure about that, but wasn't it um, Cole's uh, son who designed uh, Walski's house? Oh. I might... I might have that wrong, but I don't think I do. Oh, I did know his son was an architect. Dave and I were friends. I really liked that guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they. The, that was uh, Cole and Thompson Architects, right? Yeah. I think Dave Cole retired, or, or I'm, not, I'm not sure if he's even still around, but um, I think uh, Thompson is still working on his own, maybe. Uh, they yeah, a did, lot of nice work, too. They did the Alaska Mutual Building downtown together. Yeah, those guys always had a pretty good um, uh, sense of uh, proportion. And, oh, yeah. You know, how, how things should look. Uh, Gordon it was a good designer. I, I knew him. His father owned an airways out at Merrill Field. I remember that when I first met him. Sounds good. Well, I think we've arrived at a point where we're about out of time, and uh, we'll wrap this one up and uh, pick it up next time where we're leaving it off here. All right, and thank you for uh, asking me to uh, talk. Great speaking with you, Ralph. Nice talking to you. Talk to you again soon. You bet. You bet. can see some of Ralph's work at his website, artechdivisions.com. My website is frame-ak.com. Ralph is working on a book about his time in Alaska. We apologize for our technical difficulties, and we're looking for improvement over upcoming episodes. We'd like to acknowledge help from Chenny, Ralph's IT consultant, Dennis Witt of Sound Devices, Chris Bedelic, my friend from radio when it was analog, and Carol Stockard, architect, who encouraged me to write about Ralph's work. This is Alley Audiovision, episode one, recorded February 14th, 2020. More soon. So long, dear friends. <laughs>